0: Community.com. A rabbit's foot, four-leaf clover, a horseshoe, fuzzy dice, penny on the sidewalk, a pregame ritual, a certain seat. The number seven, right, if this were a trivia contest, what would you guess those are representing? Lucky objects, right? Lucky charms, good luck charms. Some some people carry patron saint medals or angel charms or special crystals for protection. These are just kind of the, a few of the superstitions that we grab onto. Uh, they're, they're made up beliefs in these objects or actions that we think are gonna bring us good fortune somehow. And if you think about it, it's crazy to believe in that those things work, but we, we really do. We Sometimes we really do. In today's story, the passage that we're looking at, we're going to read about the people of Israel taking this actual holy, sacred object where the actual physical presence of God was and basically turning it into a lucky charm a good luck charm, or at least trying to. And they're going to learn a valuable lesson, and it's kind of our title for today. God is no good luck charm. God is no good luck charm. So we're going to dive into, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to dive into some chapters with, with really some odd stories, some odd happenings, specifically uh, 1 Samuel 4 through 7. These chapters have these stories. They kind of are all interrelated, but it would... It would have been really hard to do them all in one morning, because it's like four chapters, so we're going to break them up, and we're just covering chapter four this week. But fair warning, some of these stories are a bit unusual, right? So when you, when you come across odd or unusual stories in Scripture, it, it, it might make you think, first of all, man, the Bible is pretty darn weird. <laughs> and we might think like, oh, did, did that really happen? Come on, did that really happen? Like, does God really work that way? And if so, why would he do such a thing? Because it just doesn't make much sense. And yet usually, or I would say always, uh, these weird events, both the big ones and the small ones, they show something significant about God. So our story is starting in uh, 1 Samuel. Actually, it's chapter 4, but we're going to back it up a couple of verses into chapter 3 if you want to turn there. And uh, to set the stage, this is gonna be uh, about a battle that takes place between the people of Israel and the Philistine army. So there's a map of the Philistine cities, I think. Yeah, all right, so it's a little hard to see because it's tough to zoom in on it, but the red part there is where the Philistines were. They were a powerful people, kind of that southwestern territory along the coast in the red there. Uh, They lived mainly in five fortified cities, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Elon, Gath, and Gaza, right? And these are kind of cities or city-states at the time. When when the Israelites wandered in the wilderness, just to give you some background, a few hundred years earlier, God actually directed them around the the Philistine cities to avoid them. They were well-trained for war and they were kind of ruthless, right? But then once Israel settles into the Promised Land, which is kind of uh, quite a stretch there, uh, the Philistines became a real thorn in Israel's side, right? they they keep raiding Israel in the territories. They would oppress the people there. They would take some of them captive. At times, they would kill others. So they were, they, they were pretty uh, brutal. They were pretty tough uh, going there and um they were also the main opponent of the character samson in the scripture who is the the judge that god has raised up for israel around this time okay so this is kind of a little bit of backstory we're picking things up at the end of chapter three uh starting in verse 19 and says this and samuel grew and the lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground and all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. All right, we'll pause there for a minute. Now God is speaking in powerful ways to the people of Israel, specifically through Samuel, who is God's first real prophet to kind of what would be the nation. Now, although he lives in the center of Israel at Shiloh, it says that everyone from Beersheba, which is far south, to Dan, which is far north, knows God speaks to him. So the word about this is spreading. Everyone knows. Now, uh, back in verse 1 of chapter 4, Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Okay, so in this battle, this first battle, Israel is defeated and 4,000 men are lost. And so the troops limp back to Shiloh and to their areas, their homes, with their tails tucked between their legs and they they kind of begin the review process, right? Like, what happened? And and here's the thing. Israel is asking the right question. The people are asking the right question. Why did the Lord let us lose? Why, Why did this happen? Because they recognize that their fortunes turn on the Lord's provision and the Lord's providence. Right? Like if they lost, it signified to them that God had withheld his blessing from their efforts in the battle. Like they, they understood this. So this is the right question for them to ask. It's the right question for us to ask too when we have difficult circumstances. When trials and disappointments come our way, we should probably conduct a similar kind of soul-searching, right? Why is God allowing this to happen? Or at least, why is it happening to me? Like We kind of instinctively realize that in our lives, there's no moment of our life that isn't under the Lord's care. Right? It isn't under, it's all under His care. There's not one that isn't. And we know, as followers of Christ, it says that Scripture tells us that God is working all things together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. So he's using everything that we go through to make us more like Jesus. So when difficulties come, it makes sense for us to question why he's allowing us to go through what we're going through. Right? Why is this happening? What went wrong? Now, also, it's a good idea to explore specifically what we're supposed to learn from this trial, right? Like a lot of times, our trials are meant to expose foolish decisions and draw us back to God. Like that had clearly been the case for the people of Israel; they they wandered off from God, from following God, time and time again, and He would allow an enemy to oppress them so that they would. They would cry out to him. They would repent. They would have a change of heart. They would cry out to him. And that was what was happening here again. So uh, they asked the right question. Israel asked the right question. But the correct answer to to their question really was this. Like God is disciplining our sin and we have to repent and return to him. We have to restore fellowship with him. Basically, God wanted them to turn their hearts back to him. Yet that's not quite the conclusion that they come to. So here's what they decide, picking it up again in verse uh, 3. Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim, and the two sons of Eli... Hophni and Phinehas were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Of course, Eli was the high priest, and his sons were were serving underneath him. And uh, as we talked about in previous weeks, Hophni and Phinehas, not good dudes, pretty evil. Eli, eh, pretty dicey himself, right? So Israel asked the right question. They don't arrive at the right answer. (laughs) They proposed taking the Ark of the Covenant out of the holiest of places in the tabernacle, and carrying it with them into battle. Now, to understand this, like I think it's, first of all, a little bit important to understand a little bit about the Ark of the Covenant, what that is, what that means, in case you're not familiar. Uh, I think we, we got a picture here, a representation. It's not an actual picture, just a <laughs> representation of the Ark. Okay? It was a chest that was about four feet long and two and a half feet wide and two and a half feet high. It was made of wood, coated in pure gold. It was topped off by an elaborate golden lid known as the mercy seat. And no one could touch the Ark or they would die. Right? So it was carried by wooden poles that ran through the golden rings at the side. Now according to the book of Exodus, the Ark contained the tablets of the law. In other words, the, the, the law that was given to Moses at Mount Sinai, Ten Commandments, that sort of thing. And according to the New Testament, and it also contained Aaron's rod, uh, who is Moses' uh, right-hand man, basically, and a, a pot or a container of manna that was uh, provided in the wilderness. Right? So this is what we know about this ark. Now, the ark was designed and commanded to be built by God himself. He gave directions for building it, and they were given to Moses. And, and it was really, I think, meant to portray... The, God's dwelling in heaven here on earth. It was like a, a picture of what that's kind of like. Now, the most important thing, though, about it is that the physical presence of God appeared there between the two gold angels that were fastened at the top. Right? That's what they meant by him being enthroned between the cherubim. Okay? So God literally dwelled there and made his presence known physically on this ark. And so when the ark was built in the time of Moses a few hundred years earlier, it was then carried by the Israelites during their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And whenever they weren't traveling, the ark was kept in a special room in a sacred tent called the tabernacle. It was like a portable temple really, which was also built according to God's exact specifications. Right? Like he laid this all out for them. Now the ark had traveled along with them and it led them into battles as God's people took over the promised land under Joshua. Once they settled there, the ark, of the, tabern- the ark and the tabernacle were kept in Shiloh, where most of these events that we're reading about are taking place, or at least stemming from. Okay, So this is the journey of the ark, really. But this ark was probably, like, almost undoubtedly, was the most sacred and holy object that the people had. And not only represented God, but his presence literally dwelled there. Okay? So <clears throat> they lose in battle. And they ask, why has this happened to us? And again, it's the right question to ask. But instead of recognizing their messed up motives and their wayward hearts, they come to the conclusion that they just haven't been manifesting the power of God in the right way, not quite doing it properly. So they decide that they lost the battle because God's ark was too far away from the battle. So the next time, we're just going to take it into the battle. And that will give us the victory. Bad idea. (laughs) It's a bad idea. They take this holy, sacred object where God literally dwells and treat it like some mystical, magical object that they can manipulate to get what they want. So they're basically using the ark like a, an idol, a pagan idol, or a good luck charm. So here's the point. Israel thought God was too physically distant from the battle. Israel thought God was too physically distant from the battle, right? But listen, God is all-powerful. He can do what he wants, where he wants, whenever he wants The distance is not a limitation for him. There's no place on earth that God isn't present. There's no place in the universe anyone can get away from him. He is everywhere at all times. But somehow they think that God is too far away from the battle to give them victory. So, Israel thought God was too physically distant from the battle. But in reality, next point is this, Israel was too spiritually distant from God. That was the real problem. Israel was too spiritually distant from God. The problem isn't God's location or God's lack of power. The problem was they weren't following him. They weren't seeking him. And so it leads to a really bad decision. They're thinking and acting as if God's will is this mystery that no one can solve. But remember how this whole thing started, this whole story started. God was speaking to people through Samuel and Shiloh. They knew that. All they needed to do was ask Samuel about it. Instead, they come up with their own messed up conclusions and decide their own course of action. Now, for us, for us, we don't need to look very hard in our own culture and life to see the same mistake repeated. Do we? I mean, and it's, it's outside the church, yeah, but it's inside the church too. Right instead of living by the word of God, we set it aside, we cling to our own views of God, our own ideas of God. Even us as Christians, who are supposed to be God's people, we do that. We approach God like a genie in a lamp, expecting him to grant our wishes. We think if we cling to an object of faith, like a cross necklace or a Bible or a statue of Mary or whatever, then God's going to bless us. We treat these objects like they have special power in and of themselves. And it's like if we just pray the right words or pray enough times or make the right gestures, then God's going to answer us. We recite prayers like there are some kind of magic words. And so then our walk with God becomes more like a superstition than a spirit-led relationship. We have to pray certain prayers. We have to sing certain hymns or songs. We only read certain version of the Bible. Right? Then God's going to respond to us if we do these things. But that's not how God works. And that's not what God wants from us. He wants us to seek Him to walk in his ways, to pursue his kingdom, to know his heart. And when we don't seek him out, and instead we just do what's best in our own eyes, the results are often disastrous. And guess what? (laughs) That's going to turn out to be the case in this story. Okay, so they get the Ark of the Covenant, and they move it to the front lines of war, and here's here's what happens. Verse 5. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp all israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded when the philistines heard the noise of the shouting they said what does this great shouting in the camp of the hebrews mean and when they learned that the ark of the lord had come into the camp the philistines were afraid for they said a god has come into the camp and they said woe to us for nothing like this has happened before Woe to us who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods. These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So everything seems like it's going according to plan here, right? Israel is all charged up and ready to go to war. Philistines are terrified. They knew about Egypt, not the full story, obviously, as they talk about the Israelites' gods, right? Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all sorts of play. There, there are no gods in Israel. There's no gods plural in Israel, nor anywhere for that matter. There is only the one true God. Philistines get that wrong, but they know what happened in Egypt and how God delivered them with these plagues, including the death of their sons and the parting of the Red Sea and drowning of the Egyptian army. They know that story. They know what happened. Hundreds of years after it happened, they know what happened. They knew how God delivered them, the Israelites. And even though they don't quite get the theology of God all right here, they knew his power. So the Philistines are terrified, but they still psych themselves up for the battle, right? Take courage, be men, and fight. Verse 10, so the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. And they fled every man to his home. There was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Now, this is like a total disaster, right? The battle, this battle, was worse tragedy than the other one. Their ungodly thinking, their bad ideas, led to even worse results than before. It is such a dangerous place to be when we just presume that God's on our side, instead of making sure we're on his, right? Instead of making sure we're in line with his heart. When we just charge ahead and presume his blessing, we set ourselves up for tragic results like this. And I think there's a lesson here, kind of a key point we should realize. Depravity and sinful decisions are a dangerous downward spiral. Depravity and sinful decisions are a dangerous downward spiral. Like things start to go downhill and they pick up steam with each decision that flies in the face of God. Paul talked about this in Romans. He said, look, those who don't believe will not follow the Lord. Then they're going to suppress the truth. And then they're going to dishonor God. They become fools. And they trade reality for fiction. They turn their backs on God. And they fill themselves up with all kinds of unrighteous behavior. And then they eventually end up celebrating the sin and the depravity that they're a part of. And they encourage other people to do it. They encourage it in others, right? This leads to a bad place spiritually. So depravity and sinful decisions, that's a dangerous downward spiral. We see that in this story. 4,000 killed in the first battle. Then they treat God and the ark like some sort of good luck charm, bring it into battle, and 30,000 are killed in this one. And on top of that, Eli's sons die. On the same day, just a God had prophesied and forewarned would happen. He predicted this. We read about this a couple of chapters ago. And this prophecy, this, these words came to pass. So verse 12, A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head kind of a sign of mourning and grief. And when he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching for his heart trembled for the ark of God. His heart trembled for the ark of God. Like it's as if he knew this was a bad idea and was worried it wouldn't go well. But again, he's the high priest. He's in charge of the ark and taking care of it. He obviously signed off on it. And it says, And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. There has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phineas, are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. Again, worst possible outcome. Right? Yet it shouldn't have been a surprise, most of it anyway. Uh, it was the fulfillment of what God promised would happen earlier. Eli's line was going to be cut off from the priestly throne. His two sons would die on the same day for evil, for their evil. And then on top of that, the ark was captured. Verse 18 says, As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. Like, that was not part of the prophecy that God had given. But once Eli knew that God's word had had come to pass, then Eli himself died as well. Now, here's the last segment of, of chapter 4. Now, his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, "'Do not be afraid, for you've borne a son.'" but she did not answer or pay attention. She named the child Ichabod, saying the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. Right? So this precious religious symbol, this holy, sacred object, is now in the hands of the enemy. And worse yet, the glory in it, God's physical presence, His actual presence, has been taken away from His people. Their high priest, Eli, his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, have died. And then right after this, Phinehas, his wife, has a son. But then she dies. Right? Now, and according to the wording, you could... You could read it that it sounds like maybe that death occurred later, years later. But the fact that they're mentioned so closely together, I think it's supposed to lead us to believe that she apparently died very shortly after the childbirth. And the others are trying to comfort her in her dying breath. You've been blessed with the son to carry on the lineage and legacy. Do not be afraid. But she takes like no consolation in that. Because she seems to be the only one who gets it. The real tragedy in all of this is that the glory of God has left the camp. Right? Like, God is no longer with His people. So this is a pretty dark moment for Israel, and she dies with this heaviness in her heart. Like, the tragedy here is that the presence and glory of God is no longer with them. So that's going to be the end of our our text for today. Ends in a real happy place. <laughs> but I want us to close with two questions as we think about all of this unfolding. Two questions that I think we should consider this morning. They're, they're kind of the same question, but in two different ways, I guess. And the first question is this. How important to you is the presence and glory of God in your life? And How important to you is the presence and glory of God in your life? Like there's a lot of things in this segment of the story that are significant, but man, the thing that strikes me the most is right here at the end. Phineas's wife, for her, the greatest tragedy she's facing is not the lost battles. It's not the 30,000 soldiers who have died. It's not the loss of her husband or her family members. It's not even that she is about to lose her own life the greatest tragedy for her is that God's glory and presence is no longer with them. It's no longer with her. And that's what's breaking her heart. So how about you? How about me? How important to you is the presence and glory of God in your life? Let me just ask that question in a few ways for us to consider, like, When it comes to God, do you you miss Him when you haven't sensed His presence in your life in a while? Do you even think about that? Are you willing to start throwing off anything that hinders that relationship with God that gets in the way? Setting things aside so you can be with Him? Are you willing to shove aside the sin that so easily entangles us, as Scripture says, and then instead run after Jesus? You're willing to rid yourself of the stuff in life that distracts you from spending time with Him. Like, do we chase after God's presence in our lives? Do we long for His glory to be known? For His presence to be experienced? Like, do we love Him more than anything else? And does it break our hearts when we're no longer sensing His presence with us? Right, so how important to you is the presence and glory of God in your life. And here's a second question to consider. Again, similar. Is God's presence more important to you than the symbols of his presence? Is God's presence more important to you than the symbols of his presence? Like Israel in this story, they got it wrong. So wrong. They took God for granted. They didn't recognize his value the value of His presence or His glory. He was right there with them. He was right there in their midst and they didn't even really seek Him or know Him or understand Him. At all. They certainly didn't care about living according to His Word and His ways. They only saw the ark as a good luck charm that could maybe get them what they wanted. Victory in the battle. So for them, the symbol of God was far more important than the actual presence of God. How about us? How about you? Is God's presence more important to you than the symbols of his presence? You can think about it this way. Do you, do you love the Bible? Yeah, I hope you do. More importantly, do you love the God of the Bible? Do you love that cross necklace that you wear? Or do you love the king of the cross? do you cling to the Lord's prayer or to the Lord of that prayer? Do you love worship? Or do you love the God who is the object of that worship? Do you love your Christian church? Your Christian community? For some, your Christian school? Your Christian ideals? Do you love those things? Or do you love Christ more? Right? Is God's presence more important to you than the symbols of his presence? If the worship team wants to come up, we're going to close with a song that's actually a newer song. It's a new song for us here. It's called Light the Fire, and the words of the song are this. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Take me back to where it all began, where all I ever wanted was your presence. How I long to be there once again. It's really easy for us to get to a place where God's presence kind of gets set aside. And the cry of this song is that our hearts would long for God in His presence More. And I'll say this that not feeling God's presence, by the way, doesn't mean He left us or abandoned us. He promised He would never leave us or forsake us, and that He would always be with us. But at the same time, we need to draw near to Him and abide in Him in order to know that presence. And so, this is the heart cry of this song Take it back. Take me back to where all I really want is your presence. I'm going to close in prayer and then invite you to sing with us. Father God, there are so many different aspects of this story. So many things that are maybe odd or weird. But at the heart of it is that you long for us to seek you to know you to want your presence in our life and your glory more than anything else not the objects not the symbols of you but you actual you and that becomes something so often that we neglect and set aside and this morning we just Pray that this song, this time of worship, this song would be like a prayer of longing to experience you once again. God, as we sing, as we worship you in this way, would you meet us here? Would you meet us here and, and, and remind us once again of what it's like to experience you in a close and personal way? And Lord, of course, as we go from this place, we pray that we wouldn't just leave it here, leave it behind and forget about you, but we would continue to chase after you, to seek you, to abide in you so we can experience your presence. Not that the not that it's about the experience, but it's about knowing you and loving you and seeking you. Pray these things in the name of Christ. Thanks for listening to the podcast of the Portico Church in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. You can find out more about our church at porticocommunity.com.